The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of September. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words Correspondent, and I'm thrilled to have uh, discussing our September selection today with me, Laura Bennett, a Slate senior editor. Hello, Laura. Hello. And Hannah Rosen, who should I identify you as an NPR Invisibilia co-host or writer or yes. all those things? Yes, co-host. Okay. Hi, Hannah. Hi. So we will be talking about Emma Klein's The Girls today, and this is a reimagining of the Manson murders uh, with special attention paid to these uh, magnetic uh, female acolytes of the cult master. And uh, The Girls is told through the eyes of one 14-year-old girl, Evie Boyd, who is sort of um, seduced uh, by the cult. And you guys, I was telling you before we went live today that I'm so excited to talk about this book with you because I am very perturbed about not quite having a grasp on how I feel about it in the first place. I feel a lot of things, but I don't have a crystallized uh, take on it. And I wonder if either of you can start us off with a way in. Well, I'll at least talk about my evolution of how I felt about it. Uh, the reviews have basically said lots of beautiful writing, but a little manipulative. What's the point? Why do we need to rehash the Charles Manson murders? Like the reviews have been sort of admiring of her craft as a writer, and we should talk about that. She has many, many beautiful – she sort of captures slices of life in just – a really vivid and very visual way, which is unusual, and I think what people admire. But then people have kind of pulled back, almost as if they feel like, hey, she's trying to snow me or something. Like, she's, she's trying to manipulate me. Um, um, so maybe we can talk about that. I have actually moved to a, a, a sort of, like, greater and more generous interpretation of the novel, as I've read it a couple of times. But let's just talk about the feeling of manipulation that one gets reading this novel. Right. I think that's a very good point. It's interesting. I had kind of an opposite evolution to the one Hannah's describing, where... I started out feeling so seduced by this book. I was like, oh, man, Emma Klein, she's so young. She's so talented. There are so many, uh, you know, glittering sentences that I was willing to overlook the, or I was willing to, let's just, I was manipulated. I had or I was fully uh, in its thrall. And then the more I thought about it and the more I, I mean, basically by the time I finished the book, I felt frustrated by a few things about it. It also, I mean, one fact of this prose is that it alternates between crystalline and original and sort of overwrought. It's just an absolute simile and metaphor bonanza. Yes. Like it was almost <laughs> incredible. There were just, you'd get a lovely line like, uh, you know, the line about how it ex she exposed the twitchy rabbit heart. Or there was one line about um, the troop of young people who live in this sort of Manson-like cult walking into this guy's house as thoughtless as an occupying army. So many lines like that. And then just strings of them that feel meaningless. Like I wrote down a few of these because I was just kind of cataloging them like a smile as indulgent and constant as a sales girl's the soda as intoxicating as champagne. They just go on and on. And I thought it kind of it almost captures a central anxiety in the book, which is that it's so desperate to find meaning in every moment that you can yes. feel it casting about for it. Like she's sort of stringing together 
analogies in an urgent attempt to persuade you that nothing is as it seems. And that's kind of what's what's animating it. I think that's a really good point. I mean, one that leapt out at me as sort of a meta metaphor of Emma Klein's style was she describes a face um, as a portrait of need, like an orphan's empty dish. And again, like that, that figure really didn't do much to illuminate anything for me. And it was just sort of another analogy. And I think actually my evolution with this book uh, changed when I had a glass of red wine. So it was the opposite of yours, Laura, because I um, I started reading and I was not seduced by the language at all. I wrote, I think the words that I kept thinking were like labored and garish. Like there was a, there was a phrase that was like um, the hot jumpiness of a dick in my hand. And I was just like, no, what? Ooh, like stop. Um, and then. Why is it jumpy? I feel like you got to get that checked out. Yeah. But there was another great dick one too. Like when, when the cult leader first revealed, I mean, some of them are so good. I feel like that's, that's something you can work with. Mm-hmm. Like someone this young who's got such a vivid yes. and totally. just kind of like feverish imagination. And sometimes she captures things just perfectly. Like James Wood mentioned one. It also stuck with me. He's the critic in The New Yorker. A nothing jump of soda yeah, in your throat. Like I had the which... opposite reaction to that. What is a nothing jump? I mean, does soda jump in your throat? That was the one that had me Doesn't that evoke that that feeling immediately of like you're drinking a carbonated drink and there's just this weird like movement in your throat, but it's meaningless? I guess and it to depends me, the on mean- the carbonated the- drink. <laughs> Um, LaCroix. I was the upscale (laughs) carbonated drink. I I was mostly thinking what that evoked for me, it had layers of evocation, evokingness, whatever, was one was that just feeling came to me immediately. And the second was that a bored 14-year-old, you'd have to be a bored 14-year-old to notice that. Like just Mm. someone lazing, like lazing their ways through the nothing of a summer day for that little moment to even register. So anyway, that's why that's why it worked for me. Yeah, I actually I mean, I thought maybe it was the wine, but I got progressively more beguiled the more I read. That I thought that the first part of the book was just it was trying really hard. It had this kind of affected overheatedness that again, Laura sort of relates to what you said about a desperate to convince us that everything is or means more than it is, which I think is a part of the narrator's personality. Like she is desperate for meaning for some sort of uh, shimmering world superimposed on top of the boring one that she actually lives in. And that's what leads right. her to get so seduced by the cult. Um, but I don't think that originally the book does enough to challenge that kind of naive uh, mindset. Yes, I totally agree with you. Actually, James Wood, as we're uh, invoking his review, had this nice line where he said, everything in the girls is pre-elegized. Mm-hmm. And that, I thought, is a really kind of nails a central frustration I had, too, which was just, I mean, yeah, this sort of promiscuity of her attempts to infuse moments with, with meaning to sort of hang a lantern on a sentence and say, this is important. I remember there was one paragraph and followed by white space where it was, I hadn't been in the ocean at all. A waitress at that cafe told me this was a breeding ground for great whites. And I was like, wait, what? What does that mean? Sort of just the 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 fact that she leaves you with that makes you kind of grasp for something when it may be that nothing is there at all. 
But on the other hand, this is sort of what adolescence is like. You know, everything feels capitalized. You hang a lantern on every moment because you don't know what's important and what's not. And your development as a human is so kind of convoluted and breakneck that every afternoon feels momentous. So in a weird way, she captures that. But I just don't think it quite works as a literary or narrative tack because it numbs you to the truly significant moments as the book goes on. So can I throw a theory at you guys, which actually extends this thing that you're saying? Here's my here's my generous theory. So what happened to me after reading this book a couple of times is I thought to myself, it's not actually about the Manson murders at all. Um, here's the person who she's a watcher, right? Like that's the essential thing about the central character, Evie, is that she's always watching and she's very essentially passive. Um, there's a lot of stuff about men and women and boys and girls, which I would really like to get into just the utter passivity, like you're waiting to be tapped, waiting yes. to be, you know, someone to tap you and you come alive. But so she's a watcher and like, it's, it's about how, you know, there's the contrast between her and let me see if I can explain this. There's a contrast between her and this other woman, Suzanne, like the essential fact of Evie's life is that she was in the car when they were on the way to the Manson murders. And then she left the car and she's a footnote, right? Like there's an amazing moment in the story where she said like Suzanne got to have an arc. Something happened to Suzanne. Mm -hmm. Meaning was made. And as we all know, like all we ever did was make meaning of the Manson murders. They came to represent the 60s, the birth of Hollywood, the birth of a certain kind of serial murderer. You know, people are just the the fact that 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 is the crime that you could say America was most culturally fascinated by ever. There were endless narratives tacked onto the Manson murder. But Evie has no story. Like she doesn't live anywhere. She doesn't even have a house of her own. All she does is notice teeny tiny moments. And so so that was my generous interpretation, like all this noticing of things and this fine noticing of color and detail. It's 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 the absence of something else. It's like she just doesn't drive her own narrative in any way. That is a great framework. Yeah. I just wonder, does that make for a successful novel? I mean, is yeah. that, la- that anti arc? sufficient to make you feel like you're reading a book with an arc. Well, I actually thought that the fact this book was a bestseller, people would be disappointed by it because they think they're going to read a story about the Manson girls and there's going to be a lot of drama. And then they would pick up the book and it wouldn't be satisfying for, you know, the vast majority of people who would read it for that reason, because it wouldn't be what they expected. Yeah, I just think that the problem is, I mean, I think she's really great when she is showing Evie you know, pre-elegizing everything and and indulging in all those adolescent sort of meaning-making exercises that eventually you grow out of, but maybe. But I'm just not sure that when Emma Klein does it, it's as successful. So, for instance, like when Evie – there was like an amazing paragraph on page 45 where – Peter, who is Evie's crush at the beginning of the book, says, looking good these days, Boyd. And Klein writes, his assessment knocked me so off balance that I felt I had almost imagined it. Was I even supposed to say anything back? I'd already memorized the sentence. And I love that, um, that she had already memorized the sentence just as it, just as it had happened. So that's the pre-elegizing. But, you know, the, uh, The way that Emma Klein doesn't really have distance from, uh, I mean, she sort of does the same thing with her own writing um, that Evie is doing here. That's the thing I thought uh, that confused me and didn't work for me. It wasn't the character of Evie or all the small details. It was the fact that if that is Evie's voice, 
she's too knowing and too keen and too observant to be as utterly passive and directed as she is. Like, that was the problem for me. Like, Emma Klein's voice and Evie's voice are somehow were too intertwined. Like, we're too intertwined to be believable. Uh-huh. You know, I I also noticed, it's it's funny, Peter was kind of a minor character, Connie's brother, who um, Evie was in love with, but I thought he was quite revealing. I also like. I mean, I liked, he, these are so small, but this, the moments when Evie is commenting on Peter and his girlfriend, Pamela, and how she kind of imagines them together and their easy happiness and regards his love for her as almost, you know, mystical, like a spell Pamela has somehow cast. And she wants to understand that power and figure out how to practice it. I think that, I mean, the the passivity is so, is such a feature of teenagehood, like even more than it's a feature, I think, of Evie's sort of a character or particular temperament. It's just about being an adolescent girl and sort of regarding the opposite sex and wondering how does it, you know, how how does it work to get a man to love you? And I thought that was kind of poignant and uh, persuasive. Yeah, he, she, one sentence that I wrote down is she says about Peter, he piloted the night, you know, That's which is great. a theme that comes up over and over again, how the men, the boys, the men, they, they, they pilot everything. She says this is her, this is her big disgust with her mother is she feels like her mother is just waiting for a man to come along and sort of give her a story, you know, otherwise her mother's just stumbling through various new age kind of things that fall on her lap. But, but, but it's the man she's waiting for who will kind of, you know, activate her. Yeah. And the men are so simple, right? Like this, this is a, a scene that's echoed at the very end of the novel, but she has that moment where she realizes that Peter and his friend Hank, I think, I can't remember his name. They're just, you know, they don't have these complicated motives or like secret meanings. They're just there. They're just, you know, playing pool and drinking beer. And there's no, they, they're, they're not these texts that need to be interpreted. They're just there. Um, and in the same way, at the end of the book, there's a man walking towards the now middle-aged EV and she starts spinning all these narratives about what he's up to and what he's going to do to her and what he means. And in the end, he's just, he's just a guy listening to his headphones. Um, and yeah. that was like one of the weirdest and most um, powerful sort of revelations in this book that like sometimes there isn't really anything there it's just you know what appears to be on the surface just is well what can is. we talk more what a sad little uh-huh. abnegation like yeah. well maybe there's no meaning in anything and i've spent however many hundred pages trying to find meaning you know i agree that the men are at times sort of cartoonishly menacing or disappointing but i actually found them pretty interesting for the most point i mean especially you know i like that they're the men are at once filtered through the kind of madly biased lens of evie's adolescence in which men hold all this terrifying power and they're piloting the night and they're either supervillains or seducers. But then in little flashes, we see their real selves. Like her mother's boyfriend, Frank, that moment when he shows kindness to her, mm. he, you know, he doesn't tell on her when she's stealing from her mom. Like, like he seems like this self-serving cat. And then, you know, he reveals himself. Like I thought Russell was a pretty effective creation. I'm curious what you guys think about Russell, too, as a character. Um, I, I can't decide how much of a completely unreliable, like about Evie, whether she's a totally unreliable narrator about men, whether Emma Klein is saying something real about men and women, 
or whether, and maybe this is because, Katie, I was reading your piece about triggers, <laughs> that actually Evie is someone in a state of permanent trauma. Mm-hmm. That she, there's so many moments when she has a kind of PTSD trigger moments. So that, that guy at the end is kind of a trigger of the childhood that she's never made sense of, and that essentially her memories are in these fragments everywhere. And she, you know, has not lived a fulfilling life. And so so everything is just kind of a series of traumas coming back at her, which add up to Russell. And Russell was kind of benign. I don't know. Russell was interesting. He was simple, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, well, there wasn't so that's, much there. You guys say that the men are interesting. And I like my uh, binary, which is overstating everything, was just uh, women are magic and men are boring in this book. Like, <laughs> yeah. and even right. when, um, what is the phrase? Klein is describing the way uh, Evie's dad sees her and she she says something like, my brain to him was a mysterious magic trick that he could only wonder at. Right. Um, and it's just right. like, there's so that. much glamour and secretness and, and like uh, intrigue surrounding the women and the small details of the way the women move and their snaggle teeth and their floating of their fabric in the wind or whatever. Um, and the men are just like lumps. Like they don't do or mean or – I mean they're just – they have none of that mystique. Right. They're just projected onto over and over again by all the women. I mean, I agree that the men are pretty simple. I thought I like that Russell, we get a sense of both his unrealness and the way everyone sort of circles him and imagines him to be things that he is far too boring to be. But then I don't know. There are just these moments when the light bulb flashes on and you catch a glimpse of him as this seedy, desperate. I mean, you know, it's not it's not that hard to catch these glimpses. But, you know, he's not even good at making music the way he's just sort of coasting on his charisma, the way he became. I think this is Klein's phrase, an expert in female sadness. He is at once you can understand his charisma and his forcefulness, but you get a sense like you I feel like you see him, too, in full technicolor. That's interesting because the culture has always been more fascinated with the Manson girls than with Charles Manson himself. I mean, Charles Manson, you know, he he, the, he exactly what she that's a that's a copy of Charles Manson. Like, um, you know, he wanted to be a musician. It didn't work out. He had these various connections. He was charismatic in some way. That's that's hard to understand why he was small. Um, and um, and then he just went nuts, you know, whereas the girls have always really, really fascinated people. So there's an echo of reality there. So what did you guys make of her relationship with Suzanne? Like, was that love? Was that mothering compared? So if the relationship, so if men are essentially a threat or or just like objects that you project on, but who are effectively either menacing or boring, what 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 is Suzanne? I, you know, that's a great question because I found myself wishing I thought Suzanne was an interesting character. If, uh, you know, in some ways as simple and kind of illusory as a lot of the men in the book. But I just found myself wishing that, spoiler alert, that uh, Evie and Suzanne didn't actually get sexually involved because uh, this was a book about the way I thought the way heterosexual female infatuation works and the confused projection of desire on someone whose desirability you envy and admire Especially in light of the ending when, you know, the man who seems ominous and terrifying is just no one, a stranger. But then, you know, when they were like – I I understood their making out or whatever as a kind of sick performance for Mitch 
but less as an actual seduction. I just wasn't sure how it jived with the themes of the book. But what did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, my issue with Suzanne is like she's not a character. Like she's not, she doesn't have an interior life that I think we are really invited into. And so she just seemed to me like another fantasy projection, much in the same way that some of the guys are sort of scarecrows upon which the um, different feelings and dreams are hung. So I think that this book in general, like, has this very sort of weird mythologizing slash pathologizing attitude towards women, especially young women. And it doesn't really treat them as human beings. It treats them as, like, objects of fantasy. And everyone who is not Evie in this very feverish and overheated book is like a projection of some kind of desire or need of Evie's. And Suzanne was, like, the prime example of this. Um, And so it's like very interesting to dwell in this world that's all sort of like one woman's head, one girl who is sort of like having these unhinged uh, imaginings. But it's also like I started to feel suffocated and like a little bit, I don't know, just like exhausted by it. Um, But Suzanne, okay, so Suzanne doesn't have much of an inner life. Um, You know, she is at that moment under the sway of the cult. Um, But Suzanne does do, I mean, Suzanne, there is some love. There is something genuine in Suzanne that isn't in anyone else except for the guy who, um, who picks, who the hitchhike guy, the guy who picks up Evie. Um, In, you know, places where you get kind of, you know, a little fresh air outside of Evie's mind, and you don't get that much, but the hitchhiker is one moment. Um, and then the the dad's girlfriend is another moment. Um, but but Suzanne, I mean, we are supposed to understand that Suzanne is very genuinely protective of Evie, right? Like, she didn't actually want her to come onto that bus, and she kicked her out of that car because she knew she wasn't strong enough to face the murders. I mean, aren't we supposed to understand there's some genuine humanity in Suzanne, which somehow Evie's attracted to? Oh, that, you know, that's, it's a complicated question. I mean, humanity, I'm not sure if that's the way I would have put it, mostly just because that line sticks with me about how from the, from the trial at the end about how there's, her eyes are famously black or whatever that exact line Mm -hmm. is about how there's nobody home. I thought of Suzanne more as, a someone that deeply selfish and manipulative who preyed on Evie's weakness, not in an entirely dissimilar way to the way Russell did. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess we're supposed to understand her casting her out of the car as a moment of self-reckoning on Suzanne's part. But to me, it didn't really redeem her. And it was just, you know, I didn't I, I feel like we'd spent so much time sitting in Evie's brain while she revered and projected onto Suzanne that it was hard to really understand her interior life, as Katie said. I can see the argument that this was sort of like Suzanne's half-redemption or redemptive moment where she sort of protects Evie. And there's that interesting uh, reflection at the end where Evie is saying, well, maybe Suzanne was sending me out as her avatar, as the person who could live the sort of normal life that Suzanne couldn't have. But to me, she just seemed sort of spellbound by the cult and everything that they were doing, and she didn't want to share that with Evie. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's uncharitable. I was more interested in how 
so if you take so if you say that Susanna's like the men, she's just a projection of Evie. She's charismatic and manipulative. Evie was able to breathe, like breathe or come alive in in Suzanne's air, sort of in the glow, in a way that she wasn't with any of the boys or men. So with the boys and men who she who she projects onto, she's utterly passive, right? She's she's not herself. She doesn't express. She's just like a sexual toy for Mitch. She just doesn't exist. Um, but with Suzanne, Suzanne sort of activates her in a different way to like feel something, to steal something, you know, to do something, really, to be something. So that's why it felt a little, there was, there was just, she didn't squash Evie completely the way everybody else did. So it just felt like something was a little more real there. Like when she came back to visit Evie at the boarding house, that was an odd moment because Suzanne didn't manipulate her. She just let her live her life. So I wondered if there was something we were supposed to understand about men and women in that moment. It was almost, it reminded me of Monster, that Charlize Theron. Is that how you, you know, how like in the female relationship, even if it's sort of wicked and strange and manipulative, like things can, like a little spark of genuine love can flower. But with the men, that's just not possible. I, you know, and I. I also liked Katie's uh, interpretation of, well, you know, pulling from the book the line about Suzanne viewing Evie as an avatar. That is, to me, a very persuasive and less generous interpretation of her desire to release her. Yeah, it's just it, it's it, it's a part of her. It's a it's a continuation of her selfishness rather than any sort of real charity on her part. Although I do think there's something in the idea that women have a solidarity because they are preyed upon in the same way by patriarchy or whatever. And so Suzanne and Evie will always have that sort of shared position. And and when when Klein talks about the feeling of the weight of the knife in Suzanne's hand and Evie can imagine holding it and she can imagine all the hatred that Suzanne must have felt, like, sure, I guess that can bring you together. What was that about, that just kind of passage about hatred, that passage of identification through hating men, mostly? Should we read Yeah, I wonder if we should read from it. 350. Hannah, do you want to read it? Where is it? Oh, or I can read it. Um, None of this was rare. Things like this happened hundreds of times, maybe more. The hatred that vibrated beneath the surface of my girl's face. I think Suzanne recognized it. Of course my hand would anticipate the weight of a knife, the particular give of a human body. There is so much to destroy. Yes. So that's what is that? What is that? What 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 is that? Are we is that is there something true there? Are we supposed to recognize something true in that stream of hatred? Is there anything justified in that? God, like they I feel oh, like she's playing man. at the end of the yeah. novel with like playing with this idea that like some of this is is kind of justified rage against men who treat women in a certain way. Right, she's going like Tarantino revenge fantasy on behalf of like the poor oppressed ladies and I don't know, to me and I I think it's probably not helped by like the fragmented sentences which again like overheated, overwrought. This did not persuade me at all. I don't know. I just me either. Ugh. It didn't persuade you what that any that it was justified or that there was yeah. Any, no, I mean it didn't. That there was any. It didn't make me like thrill with some kind of feminine identification of like there was so much to destroy. Like how dare these men do things to us? Right. I agree. I mean, Mitch is gross. He's a scumbag. He's uh, just like a rich. Just grimy, 
you know, idiot who preys on the weakness of women. But to me, this I agree with Katie that this passage just sort of alighted on us out of nowhere that I don't know. We've spent so much time coming to understand the I don't know if I would call it complicity, but the the way being young and vulnerable and teenage and female makes you yeah, young and teenage um, makes you so hungry for experience that sometimes you'll put yourself in positions that sabotage you. I mean, this is not to sort of not to lift the blame off the patriarchy for the many ways in which it is, you know, victimizing Evie and all the young women in the story. But I don't know. I just felt like instead of rearing up and hating mankind at the end, I thought we were supposed to understand that that Evie would be okay and that she had sort of been through, I don't know. The, the, um, well, maybe to maybe to resolve this or get closer to resolving it, we should talk about middle-aged Evie. Yes. And the experience middle-aged Evie has in that house with this trio. It's her friend's son, who's Julian, and his girlfriend, Sasha, in this house that she is house-sitting, which is, you know, meant to be a sad situation. Like, you're supposed to understand that her life has been flatlined. Like, she had this one brief relationship that didn't work out with someone who she who she describes as working in like a third-rate community college you know she's she she presumably doesn't have enough money to afford her own place so she's house sitting or crashing at someone's house who she's not that close to and suddenly his son shows up his son who she she has like fond memories of as like a nine-year-old playing at some kind of concert right um and here here he shows up and he's not so lovely anymore i am very glad you brought that up hannah because i did not like the bookending device with adult evie i mean i get that it was sort of intended to punch up the wistful cast of the book even more and to kind of force us to process evie's adolescence through her middle-aged eyes but man who cares about julian and dan and allison i just felt like that evie wasn't as interesting as a young Evie and or even quite recognizable as an aged version of young Evie, she was just she just kind of felt like a nostalgia delivery device. She was very clearly an excuse for Evie to behold a teenage girl and identify with her, you know, or for that teenage girl who is uh, Julian's girlfriend to become a kind of totem who transports her back in time to her own youth. But I just found that to be kind of uh, cheesy. I thought it was supposed to be universalizing. Like, this is the moment. This is not a novel. This is where you announce this is not just a novel about the Manson girls. This is a novel about girls. And so here you have a girl all these many years later who's in the same shitty situation as these girls were in in the 60s. Like, it's not a particular cultural moment. I mean, there's so many – like, Sasha's just such a – She's passive and like it's like literally passive. Like her Julian has left. She's a all we know about her. She she mimics a porn star when they're having sex. You know she 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 sort of moans and high pitch moans like a porn star. Um, I think he calls her a cunt. It's like just so <laughs> unpleasant the whole situation. And then the next morning he leaves for a drug deal and doesn't tell her that he's left her behind. And then he comes back with his scummy friend and has her like lift up her shirt. I mean, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. And so, her, like, so what is all that horribleness? Yeah. And also just to add the crowning moment, like the one thing that she does that is active is she puts a pizza in the oven and then does not realize that the clock has stopped. Uh, like symbolism alert and right, the pizza right. burns yeah. and so <laughs> yeah okay but go ahead oh no that is so that is funny that she she does burn the pizza and i 
I guess I just wonder, do you guys think we needed that book ending in order to understand that Evie is all women, that this is not just or all girls, that this is not just about the Manson girls? That to me was so abundantly clear um, that the framing felt like window dressing. To me, it wasn't. For me, it wasn't so much um, ineffective as just depressing, like so, so depressing because you get this woman who hasn't ever really been activated or shaped or found herself and she's just a cipher and she doesn't seem like she has had any agency in creating a life for herself. And you see her sort of projected into the future and then you see her encounter the younger version of herself and she's not even empowered enough to set Sasha on the right path or to do anything to interfere with that trajectory. And so it was just this very bleak, hopeless gesture on the novel's part. I guess it made a point, but um, it was not sort of like the hopeful future that we could have gotten instead. Okay. So my question for you guys, you weren't, you just are not buying her the sort of the passivity of women, her 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 kind of heartbreak at the passivity of women. It's just too much for you or it's unconvincing. Just uh, like the position women are put in that they are endlessly I think it is passive. a weird mythologized version of women that is not true, but it is very cliched and sort of um, attractive to the type of person. Like I also like, you know, Mag- Megan Abbott's the fever and but the, those types of books that sort of traffic in this vision of women as like completely bound up in their looks and their bodies and their desires and their hungers and the sort of like enchanting quality that you can't put your finger on like when does Evie or Suzanne or anyone like talk about a book that they liked or a show that they liked or like I don't know it just this kind of Sorry, no, 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 I'm just laughing. I, I love yeah. it's just such a perfectly walled minion critique that they should. What about the books they like? That would really help us <laughs> understand their characters more. No, They're I just like drippy like, and passive yeah. and like observant, I mean, observing. Uh, they're so drippy and so passive. I, you know, I've said this before, but my take was more that it felt like a faithful enough rendering of what it feels like to be a teenager on the brink of you know, understanding oneself or on the brink of figuring out how to wield the kind of power that Evie can only marvel at in other women. And part of why I found that bookending device so depressing was because I didn't want to imagine Evie as a stand-in for for womankind, sort of irretrievably trapped in her own passivity. I wanted to understand this as a stage and that the universality was rooted in being 15 or however old she is. I just completely invented an age for her. I don't remember exactly how old she is. But but that's a brilliant point. Um, and that, and that was something I could, I could sort of remember from my own girlhood, but it's not something I identify with as an adult. It's so funny. I honestly think, Katie, that because I read your story about triggers, I began to think of the middle-aged Evie as someone who was just trapped in this paralyzed, like, fragment of memories and had could not move forward, that she was just, you know, that she would be assaulted. And and there's even a point where she writes about that. Where is it? Hold on. She writes about that. It's on page 16. Let me just open it. Like she writes about, this might have been what doesn't 
I knew how easily it could happen, the past at hand, like the helpless cognitive slip of an optical illusion, the tone of a day linked to some particular item, my mother's chiffon scarf, the humidity of a cut pumpkin, certain patterns of shade, even the flash of sunlight in the hood of a white card could cause a momentary ripple in me, allowing a sl- slim space of return. I'd seen old Yardley slickers, the makeup now just a waxy crumble, sell for almost $100 on the internet." Um, anyway, uh, so, so, so it was, so that was what her passivity and stuckness was about, that Evie actually had never taken the time and because of the, like, overwhelming kind of cultural narrative of the Manson murders had, had just been kind of trapped in these, in these fragments of memory that she never got to have a story she could never make sense of. So, so, but I guess that doesn't quite square with the universal girl themes that come out here and there yeah well we're the wild 60s we're the wild 60s america's adolescence the free love and the drugs and we're sort of trapped like endlessly returning to the manson murders and these memories i i don't know i don't know what to make of that like she never got to be a part of it she was just traumatized by it she got nothing from it you know she got no story she got never to move forward she didn't get the redemption narrative that suzanne got she just got nothing you know she just got kind of trapped in little tiny moments and right slices, and that's yeah. all she had yeah one question i have is because i think it's important because so many of the critics have accused this book of not pacing itself well what did you guys think of the murder scene itself the big sort of you know pinnacle moment when we actually see what happened in the house did you find it satisfying well i thought it was difficult to go from the voice that she did have to handling something like that yes um the voice lacks the kind of brutality you know so it had to be kind of in parentheses and in visuals which is not the it, it doesn't it doesn't there isn't enough there to deal with something like the murder of a boy and his mother you know, yeah, it was just point. like the boy and his mother came later. Like what what voice were you like? What tools have you set up? Have you put down in this novel to yeah. be able to describe yeah, the funny. murder of there's a mother one line where boy. she says Helen held Linda down. Her hands on Linda's shoulders were tentative at first, like a bad dance partner. Like that's just this sort of like cutesy little analogy like, cropping up there in the same vein as all the other yeah. analogies in the book. But it's in a murder scene. Yeah, right. It's in a murder scene. And so it doesn't it's too dreamy. You know, yeah, totally. and I mean, because this would have been a great opportunity for for her to sort of break free of Evie's perceptions, which have been governing like the entire novel, and show us something really shocking from the outside world uh, that sort of penetrates all of this like gauzy, dreamy, hallucinogenic, weird romance stuff. Um, but it, it didn't come. It sort of transpired in that same fragmented, suggestive, but not particularly illuminating way. Yeah, I don't know if either of you listened to the Karina Longworth podcast. You must remember this. It was a 10-part series about the Manson murders. But it was the same thing that when you're caught into kind of, in her case, it was it was a kind of um, like a little bit of a theatrical Hollywood voice. It, it's very hard then to describe an actual murder or kind of, you know, give the solemnity to the actual moments of murder that you need to do or the kind of blankness or rawness. However you want to approach it, um, if you've already set up a certain voice, you're kind of you're kind of in trouble when it comes to the murder moment, you know. Anyway, what did you guys think of Tamar, like she or Tamara or the father's secretary girlfriend? What was she doing there in this novel? Like she was supposed to represent something 
somewhat normal and liberated and free of men. Like she was clearly plotting behind the passive doltish father's back. She wasn't going to stay with him. She was like the liberated woman climbing out of the late 60s. Yeah, but like what was her passion? Does she do origami? Does she play the French horn? Like what like what is she besides like she knows the calorie <laughs> content of like all the foods in the refrigerator and that's so cool. Like what? I I'm sorry. I right. I'm now getting What is the color of her again. damn parachute? Well, I think yeah. I think also we're supposed to see in Tamar slash Tamer slash Tamer, whatever. Oh yeah, whatever. (laughs) Um, A was Evie spends all this time projecting onto her and imagining her as this temptress, this this sort of sylph who has managed to seduce the most important man in her life, who's her father, who's gotten what she wanted, who's done everything that Evie hasn't figured out how to do, has sort of, you know, totally disrupted her own life. And then it's a kind of arc of self-reckoning for Evie to see that Tamar's not happy anyway, that she's gotten what she wanted and she's still bored and she's still questing and that that's important for Evie to see. Ugh, it's so depressing. You guys are depressing me. It's like one thing after another. There's nothing in this novel you can grab onto. Like the fate of the fate of girls is just to live in kind of passivity and Wait, deprivation. Is there any strain of optimism to be found in this book? And now I'm like, I gotta. I'm thinking about it. All right, let's try and answer that yeah. question. Yeah, let's this see. should be our. She doesn't even out. steal the toilet paper. She doesn't even steal the toilet paper. I read back the novel because in my memory sheet, actually, Suzanne had prompted her to steal the toilet paper, and I was like, "Well, that was the kind of badass breaking free." But it doesn't happen. She doesn't she steal pays, the toilet paper. She pays for it. I didn't remember that one. Um, and then even when she's like the one time she's stealing from her. Well, there are little moments of sexual power, like over that neighbor who has oh, a crush yeah. on her. Oh, right. When she's kind of realizing he has a heart on and she's realizing that, like, she caused this to happen. There's just like a little moment of genuine kind of teenage feeling out her sexual power. It doesn't go anywhere, become anything. Well, she still ends up alone yeah. hanging out with Julian and Sasha. Yeah. Yeah, it would We're be not coming nice up with if, anything. If I'm looking over some. my notes. How about boarding school? Like, does something good happen with her friend? Well, yeah, she says that the letters that she started writing to her mom were true. Classes were interesting. She made a friend. Uh, They went to the aquarium. So I guess, you know, she she finds normalcy, (laughs) if not wild fulfillment. Right. That's why I wish it ended on boarding school. That would have been a sad. I would have liked that as an ending. It's sort of she finds normalcy and she finds promise. And there's no like she becomes a writer. She has insight. She tells her own story. That's not what we're supposed to understand because there's no narrative device that has led us to understand that this is her making sense of her own life. This book itself is her gaining insight and making sense of her own life. Not that I can recall. Yeah. No. All right. So we got nothing. We got nothing. (laughs) We tried. We gave an earnest effort. At least she didn't kill anyone. Sorry. You know, and that's something that we can all take with us when we're having a bad day. At least today I didn't kill anyone. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Cool. So, uh, Hannah Rosen, would you recommend this book to your friends and dear ones? There are certain, yes, there are certain people who like close psychological profiles to whom I would recommend this book. I would not recommend it to the person who's looking for, you know, kind of crime porn or a Manson moment of which there are many because it will not satisfy them. 
But I can imagine somebody who likes a close-in novel who I would recommend this to. It's been very popular. Someone right. must be reading Even it. despite its smack, the smackdowns I got from Dwight Garner and James Wood, it's been really popular. Oh, I didn't read those as yeah. sma- smackdowns, but I guess we should um, pass over that quickly. Laura Bennett, <laughs> do you smack down the girls? No, I don't smack it down. I sort of agree with what what Hannah just said. I this one itch that this did scratch for me is the part of me that really enjoys just reading about teenagers, yeah. like remembering my own sort of yeah, hankering to you know my own sort of nostalgic leanings. It it made me think about what it was like to be a a teenage girl and and what the summers felt like and what how mystical and magical the opposite sex seemed and that. This is a mind that inhabits that that sort of psychic space very sensitively. And that worked for me. I didn't, you know, I, I would I'm not sort of gonna sing the praises of this as a as a novel or as crime fiction, but but that I did like. I agree. Thank you for saying that because we forgot to give her props for that. The inhabiting of the teenage mind, I think she did amazingly, remarkably well. Yeah. Yes. All the stuff about women waiting or young girls waiting to be told who they are and what they think that resonated a lot for me. Um, that was really, really astute. So I agree. I would maybe give it to a teenager, um, maybe give it to someone going on a beach trip, even though it is now September and this is our September selection. But I would also say you should read Megan Abbott if you're really looking for uh, sharp psychological portraits of young female minds uh, because the fever and her newest one about gymnasts is lovely. Anyway, thank you so much, you guys, for joining me. This was really fun. And we'll talk to you next month. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Jason DeLeon, and thanks for the assist, Mike Volo. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Laura Bennett and Hannah Rosen, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>